Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel preaches from John chapter 21 on the breakfast on the beach. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Have you ever been given a second chance at something in life? I'm sure you have, but you also maybe have experienced in life that you don't always get a second chance, right? There's no guarantees. But today, our message, as you've already heard through the kids' story, is on this incredible message of grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior that was shown towards Peter and the other disciples, but the focal point is Peter for sure. But it also applies to each and every one of us. Now, I'm not sure if there's a Lord of the Rings illustration here right now, but seeing as how I'm not Richard Frankowitz, our youth director, I'll just have to stick with a farming illustration. I was picking up on a shot he gave me two weeks ago when he was up here, and he couldn't come up with a farming illustration. When I was growing up on our family potato farm, Richard, in Cloverdale, there was a lot of competition to get the more comfy roles on the farm, because some of the jobs were exceedingly difficult, and others were a little easier. And so one of those coveted jobs was riding a tractor or driving in the the truck. You know, the cab of the truck was warm. The cab of the truck had a radio. The cab of the truck was fun. While the rest of you were on the harvester, back-breaking work, throwing dirt. I know this has no relevance to your lives at all, but try to picture it. I was the youngest of five boys, brothers, and cousins that were older than me. So number six, okay? And I never was the first one at the front of the line to get picked to go drive in the truck. It was always one of the older ones. And so when the opportunity came around, you coveted that moment because you knew that it was really important. You see, while the job was fun and the job was easy, it also demanded that you pay attention because that's very expensive equipment with a boom of potatoes loading into the back of a truck with a big old bin on the back. And if you went too fast or you went too slow and you weren't paying attention and you banged that boom, my Uncle Dave would be yelling at you really quickly. And it was a short leash for the younger ones. Pay attention. And oh, the walk of shame when you'd screwed up so badly that he called you out of the truck and you had to walk back to the harvester to do the general labor work while your older brother got to go drive the vehicle for you. You never knew when you were going to get a second chance. Of course, life poses for us far more devastating situations and experiences around failure than just not getting to ride in the truck. And often, even after years of forgiveness and restoration that has taken place, it only takes but a moment to draw back the feelings surrounding a moment of failure, a moment of regret through careless words or thoughts or deeds or actions. They overwhelm us, our feelings of shame and guilt. And I think that's the reality that Peter himself is facing. I mean, I would think that no one knows regret of failure more than Peter himself. Now, of course, he could put together a case or an argument, but the whole point is, Peter's was written about. The whole world knows about this one man and the fact that he denied not only his Lord, but his very dear friend Jesus three times. Peter knows failure. It cuts deep into his heart. So much so that in Matthew's gospel, when the rooster crows, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. But much time has passed now since that event, a few weeks anyways, since that fateful moment of denying Christ as Lord. Uh, Since then, as we studied last week, Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord alive. Peter and John have run to the tomb. They have seen not only the empty tomb, but the linens lying there. And then to top it all off, they've seen Jesus twice. 
So they know that Jesus is now alive. It's a different world. It's a different story. They're not underneath that, that black cloud of disillusionment and wondering about the Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus who died. They know he's alive. However, in John 21, we're going to read that these same disciples have gone back fishing. Back fishing. To their favorite fishing hole in the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to read this story for you, even though part of it was um, alluded to just moments ago. I'm going to read it for us together today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 21, um, but it will be here on the screen. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. If you count that, there's seven of them, okay? Seven of the 12 or 11 were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Peter, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this passage today, I know that you have a message for each one of us. And I would pray that you would give us ears to hear by your Holy Spirit, take your holy word and apply it to our hearts. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What a curious passage, right? Uh, there's a lot in here that we don't really quite understand. We have tons of questions. If Peter and the disciples have seen the Lord alive in Jerusalem, what are they doing traveling back to Galilee? Why are they back home, so to speak? And if they know that Jesus is alive, why have they gone back fishing? Aren't they on mission still? 
And if they've seen him before alive, why don't they recognize him right away? And once they do recognize and know that he is the Lord, why is it that no one dares ask him if he is the Lord? And why does John mention the precise number of fish, 153? We have a lot of questions about this passage, and so I'm just going to tell you, we simply don't know. There are more questions here than we have answers to. Maybe those who were the original listeners knew more of the details around this and what it all meant. But for us, we try to piece it together. And it's not to say that there isn't some educated guesses that help us understand what's going on here. But there's a lot of the sequencing here that is hard for us to totally understand clearly. But here's what I want to say. This should in no way detract from the main point of this message that I think the Apostle John has recorded for us so that we would catch this morning. It's the age-old challenge, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't let all these little details fog your ability to see the main point that Jesus has. And I believe it's a point not just for those first disciples, but for us as well as his disciples. And the point is this. This is a story about forgiveness. This is a story about healing and restoration. And it's a story about following Jesus, which is exactly what each and every one of us who are saying yes to following Jesus, we are in that same journey that these disciples themselves were on. So the first question we may have We might wonder about this going back fishing part. Was this some kind of symbolic act of their unbelief? Um, Well, not unbelief in the resurrection. They've seen Christ. So I think, no, it couldn't be that. Could it be that they've rejected the mission of Christ and gone back to their former career path? Well, maybe, but not totally really either. I mean, they believe that Jesus is on mission. I think what is evident in this scene is that it centers on Peter himself. And I think if we were to look at it through the lens of Peter and see his perspective, he might feel that he's been disqualified from being a part of the mission of Christ. But he doesn't believe that the mission of Christ is over. He just might not see himself in there because of the denial of Jesus. And so you might say that he's gone back fishing, not out of a a lack of faith of belief in Jesus himself, but in a lack of faith to believe that he's still qualified to lead. But Jesus has other plans for Peter. Notice the location. It's Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. You might remember that when Jesus first called Peter and the disciples, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, right? Uh, We read about it in Matthew 4. So Jesus has taken them back to that very place where he first called them, and in particular, Peter. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So here they are in the very place where the whole thing has started to begin with. But of course, this is post-resurrection. This is post-denial of Jesus Christ. So it's not Peter's faith in Jesus that is in question here, but it might be his calling. And as to whether or not I will make you a fisher of people is still a reality for him. The second thing to notice is that this event happens around a fire pit. This is really interesting with burning coals. Now, the last time that Peter would have been around a fire, well, at least recorded in Scripture, was when he denied Christ. You might not remember the passage. I've put it up here for us in John 18. Uh, This is the trial scene, and he's, uh, you know, kind of watching from a distance what's happening to Jesus, and he's being asked this question, aren't you one of this man's disciples too? This lady, she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also standing with them, warming himself. And so it kind of seems like this is intentional here, that Peter is being called back to a fire. That 
if you look in the second verse, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. John is intentional to include this because what seems to be happening here is that Jesus is going to take that negative memory, that, that, that vision in Peter's mind that he probably can't get rid of, and every time he sees a fire, he probably sees himself denying Christ, and he's going to replace that with a new memory. It's a new memory that's going to include the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God being shown towards Peter and to reestablish him as a servant of the Lord. And and so it seems very intentional that John is including this fire here and Jesus is intentional about bringing them back around this fire because Peter, I've got something for you that you don't even know yet. He's going to replace that and bring about his healing. So these are some of the things that we see initially as we look at this story. And I want us to just pause and go into the story, into some of the more detail and take a closer look at this. Peter, true to his nature, gets the guys together and says, let's go fishing. And as already said, we're not 100% sure why the motive there. But, you know, it could be something as much as sitting around waiting and not knowing what to do. You do the thing that you know you do. I'm going fishing. He doesn't say, guys, let's go fishing or we have to go fishing. He just simply says, I'm going fishing. And they said, sure, we'll go with you. So quite frankly, I think he's just doing what he knows to do. They fish all night, early in the morning. We've heard that before. Last week, Mary Magdalene, early in the morning, while it was still dark, at the crack of dawn, these fishermen had caught nothing. That's important. This is symbolic. Now, seeing a figure on the beach, they realize that they don't recognize this person who's calling out to them. And what this person, this stranger at this point, calls out to them doesn't even make sense. I mean, to those of us who aren't fishermen, it doesn't make sense. For those of you who are fishermen, it probably makes less sense. Have you caught anything? No, nothing. Well, throw... The net on the right side. Well, really? Because is, is it too different from the right side of the boat to the left side of the boat? I don't know their thinking process, but they maybe thought, well, we've fished all night, caught nothing. One more cast. What's the big deal? Let's give it a try. And they do. 153 large fish were caught. And I think what John is bringing our attention to here is this whole idea where the original call was to come and follow and I will make you fishers of men. Now they've gone back fishing. They've tried their hand at doing what they think they should do and it's failed. Nothing. And Jesus comes along with one obscure command to throw the net on the other side of the boat and you'll have a large catch. They obey. They just simply do it. At this point, I don't even think they have faith. They just do what he said. And they have a large catch. And I think what is uh, a lesson for us to understand here is that in our humanness, we try to do things our own way. That's what Peter has been the symbol of this all the way through, that he's doing things his own way. He's doing things in the way that he thinks is best. He's putting his hand to it. And it's not working out. And it hasn't worked out here. And with one simple command, Jesus says, throw your net over there, and there's a large catch. And the application to us is, we can as well enter into that where we think we're doing the Lord's work, and the Lord's just saying, listen, man, let me do that. I am the God who brings the return. In fact, the teaching in John chapter 15 is very much in keeping here where Jesus said, can do nothing unless you remain in me. You can produce no fruit unless you remain in me. So in other words, our job is really to walk closely with Jesus and let Jesus bring the fruit in us and through us. Does that make sense? Because when I'm just trying to produce that fruit myself, I'm probably just full of pride and I'm probably failing in ways I don't even see. I catch nothing. But if I abide in Christ, if I remain in Christ, if I just daily seek to walk with the Lord, and we're not perfect people and I get that, but if that's the heart 
that I have that is seeking God first in my life, he is going to produce something in and through my life. There will be a catch. Our job is to obey him. We plant, we water, but God brings the increase. I'm mixing my metaphors. I have to go back to farming. I mean, fishing, a catch, a harvest, it all belongs to God. Now, notice the responses of Peter and John in the story. And this is really true to their characters. We've seen this before. John observes, it is the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat and goes. This is much like what we saw last week where John runs to the tomb and he beats Peter and he looks in, but he doesn't go in, right? And then Peter arrives at the tomb and what does he do? It says he goes straight into the tomb. He goes right in. And now we're seeing these personalities again coming out. John the observer going, it's the Lord. Peter, the man of action, jumping out of the boat. Why? Peter, what are you doing? Are you thinking? No, of course he's not thinking. He's 300 feet away from the shore. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? Uh, Hey, Jesus, I want to give you a big wet hug. Like, what are you going to do, Peter? He's not thinking this through. It's the Lord. And I think what this tells us is it shows us the heart of Peter. He loves the Lord. He wants to be with the Lord. He has not in any way given up on his faith in the Lord. He wants to be there with Jesus. Now, this is a really um, amazing kind of story. It's a beautiful picture. I think it's kind of funny. What are the other disciples thinking at this point too, right? Uh, Well, there goes Peter again. I don't think they're phased one bit by the fact he jumped into the water. And they're just like, yeah, we'll bring in all these fish. No No worries, Peter. We got it. You go ahead. And this beautiful picture of Jesus on the shore... He's already served them bread and wine at a meal before, so we know that he served them, but this says that he makes them breakfast. You ever picture that? What does your kitchen look like? Can you picture yourself in your kitchen? What if you came to your kitchen and Jesus was in your kitchen? He says, good morning. Got the coffee on. I got some fresh fried fish over here. (laughs) You might not want that, but, you know, the question I ask is this. Was he a good cook? You ready for the answer? I don't know. (laughs) It is something that's intimate. It's something that's tender. It's something that's unique in that Jesus is inviting them to come and have breakfast that he himself has made, and then he serves it to them. And then after breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter. He uses his name Simon. You know, Simon was his given name. Peter was the name Jesus gave him, which meant... Petros rock meant rock, the rock. He doesn't use the rock here. He uses Simon. That may be significant. I wonder what Peter was thinking the moment Jesus, after breakfast, turns to him and says, Simon, son of John. (laughs) I wonder if his heart stopped at that moment. What's he going to say? Is this where he chastises me? Is this where he says, Simon, remember when the rooster crowed and I looked over at you and we caught eyes and you went out and you wept bitterly, Simon? But he doesn't do that, does he? Simon, do you love me more than these? And of course, we kind of wonder, well, more than these, what do you have in mind? More than these fish that we've just caught and what the career of fishing represents? Do you love me more than your career, Simon? Do you love me more than you love your friends? You just want to go hang out with your buddies and go fishing? Most likely, it's a reference to that fateful night when Jesus is telling what is about to happen to him the night before he dies, right? The night that he's betrayed. And 
And when he tells him this, Jesus is like, even if all the other disciples deny you or betray you or turn against you or leave you or are scattered, I will not. I will not. Those were the words of Peter. Do you, Peter, love me more than these others? Disciples love me. And now Jesus is taking them right back to that very painful experience. Why? Why go there, Lord? Well, it's actually to heal Peter, right? Peter is filled with the guilt and shame of what he did that night. And God knows, Jesus knows that he carries that guilt. And he knows that until he is freed of that, he will never truly be ready to serve. And you know, the guilt is associated with the pride of his heart because Peter so badly loves Jesus, he so badly wants to do the right thing, but he so badly is trusting himself to do it. And Jesus knows that until the pride of his heart is removed, as Richard said two weeks ago, Jesus needed Peter to fail so that Peter would know what it means to truly follow him as a disciple. And the reason why Jesus brings up the painful question, do you love me more than these, Peter? Because you said you did, and you failed in grand fashion, Peter. It's not to hurt Peter, it's to heal Peter, but he has to go back into that hurt. He asked him a second time with a similar response, and then on the third time, it's interesting to note here that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. I think we would look at that and go, Peter, don't you think that he has the right to ask you that the third time? But Peter's human like any of us. Couldn't, Lord, if you know all things, and you do know all things, and you know my heart because you know all things, then don't you know that in my heart I love you? Do you really need to ask me that third time? But the truth is, the three-time denial and the three-time question, do you love me, with the three-time affirmation, feed my sheep, come and be a part of my mission, was needed for Peter's well-being and for his healing. And it wasn't just for Peter. Every one of those disciples had been scattered. Maybe it's not named that they verbally denied Christ, but by their actions, they feared the same thing Peter feared. Maybe we think Jesus was being a bit hard on Peter. Peter kind of indicates that he might have thought he was. But that's the way healing works. God goes to the core of our hearts. He speaks to us about the things that matter most because he wants to heal that within us. It's our pride. This was Jesus' final call for discipleship for Peter and the other disciples. Um, I have no idea um, why I'm going to... I'm going to go to this part right here. I have no idea why in God's sovereign plan, he would let Peter know three decades before he would die that he would die an unwanted kind of death. Like, I mean, that's a horrible reality to live with. There's an awful thing to live your entire life knowing that there's coming a day that, as this passage said, he would be stretched out, he would be dressed by others. This is just all language to indicate, as the text tells us, what kind of death Peter would die, and through that death he would glorify Christ. We know that following Christ means hardship, and we know that those who follow Christ through those hard times bring glory to God. Jesus brought salvation to the world through his death, but for those who humbly submit themselves to the will of the Father, as Peter did in the giving of his own life, glorify the Father because of the same manner of humility of heart that's willing uh, to die for their Savior. And that's what Peter does. Could you imagine being told that if it was you, and then to be told this by Jesus, um, follow me? Whoa, whoa, time out. 
I was all in up until the point that you told me that someone's going to come along and stretch out my arms and kill me in a way I don't want to die. I think I was fine to serve you. I think I was fine to do hardship. But Lord, that's the ultimate sacrifice. We don't understand this so much in our North American church, do we? Michael and Debbie Olietti from Nigeria shared with us. They're in our church family and uh, immigrated to Canada recently. And, and they shared at our international potluck about what it's like for the church in Nigeria, especially in the north. And the persecution and the torture, quite frankly, and even the killing of Christians is not uncommon. And that's a reality in numerous places in the world. And I think that here in North America, we're only going to learn more and more what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That to bear the name of Christ is going to cost us much more than what it has to this point. Follow me, Jesus says. There's no qualifiers to that. There's no exceptions given to it. He commands, follow me. You must follow me. Again, Peter, true to his nature, he turns and and he looks at the disciple who's following, which is John. And he asks Jesus, Lord, what, what about him? If this is true of me, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, because of this, rumor spread among the believers that this disciple, John, would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if he wanted him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? What is that to you? Follow me. You know, each and every one of us have to deal with this command of Christ because it's the command he gives to each of us. We don't have the same path as other Christians to walk. I have the path that Jesus Christ has asked me to walk. I don't know your home life. I don't know how you were raised. I don't know what sin issues that you have uh, pre-bent toward. We all do. Jesus says, come follow me. But it's not fair, Lord. My path isn't the same as that person's path. We're all dealt cards in life that we often don't get anything to do about. We just have to submit to Jesus Christ. Lord, what are you calling me to when you tell me to follow you? We cannot compare ourselves to the other disciple. We cannot compare ourselves to another situation that another person has and says, well, this seems unfair. What about them, Lord? How come they get it easy and I get it hard? You must follow me. It's an individual, personal path we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. You walk your path, you don't walk someone else's. You can blame someone else for the path you're on, but you walk your path. And Jesus says, you must follow me. We quote this verse a lot, and I honestly, I I quote it with fear and trembling at times. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, why do I quote it with fear and trembling? Because do I really know what that means? Do I really know what that's going to cost? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And that's what Jesus is calling Peter to in this moment. It's his last call, the final call for discipleship, not only for him, but for all those disciples and for us as well. Peter would understand the truth of this message, and he would go on to write this in his own letter that he wrote in First Peter, and this is how he talks about suffering and salvation and how this works together in his mind. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's what he was holding on to. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What happened at Peter's denial, what happened at Peter's restoration and his reinstitution into serving the Lord became a reality that he could write these words right here and he would give his life for the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. What is that to you? Follow me. I grew up in the church. I've heard missionary stories. I've heard stories from around the world where people have stood for their faith. They haven't bowed their knee and they have died for that. And a million times I've asked myself, what would I do? Will I stand? Am I disciplined enough? Am I committed enough? Am I passionate enough? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Faithful enough? On and on and on it goes. And I believe there's a key in this verse. There's a key in this passage. There's a key in this story. Jesus doesn't come to Peter and say, Peter, Simon, son of John, are you committed to me? Simon, son of John, are you now going to be faithful to me? He asked this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the key that I think is there is that the people who have gone before us, who have not bowed their knee, who have bowed their knee to Christ, but not turned from Christ is what I'm trying to say. They've done it because they love Jesus. And I think each and every one of us, when we walk our daily lives, walking obediently with the Lord, loving our Lord and Savior, we are preparing ourselves for that day when we will be tested. I cannot make myself committed enough. I cannot make myself disciplined enough, but I can do this. I can draw close to Jesus Christ and know the mercy and grace that he showed to Peter to be true for myself, to allow his love to come to me and respond to him out of love to him. Do you love me? And I think each and every one of us can focus on that question. Do you love me? Jesus asks it of each and every one of us. And when we say yes to him, Lord, I love you, then out of that comes a desire to want to obey him to want to follow him. And so I encourage us, congregation, we're living in times where things are changing, where the question will be asked, who do you love more? Or what do you love more? And do you love Jesus more than these? And we need to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he will be our strength. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we will stand. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have not left us as orphans. Jesus said that he would send the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us. And we know that it's only by the fact that he lives within us that we can truly say, yes, we love you. Help us to walk our lives in a way that reflects who you are. Help us to set pride aside and allow the humility of Jesus Christ to come into us that we might live in that kind of a manner. And Lord, this is an ongoing challenge and so we need your mercies. We need your grace in our own lives that you would call us into your work. And so, Lord, guide us, give us strength, help us to stand. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us uh, here today. Next Sunday, we're going to have Pastor David Lee, um, our pastor emeritus, who's going to be here preaching for us. And so, I trust that you'll join us again next Sunday at 10 a.m. for that. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.